Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. A report from a public inquiry is expected to be delivered today, I think around just afternoon today, into the case of Elizabeth Wetlofer. Now, she was the nurse at several long-term care facilities in the Woodstock area who killed eight people over 10 years, was only caught when she admitted to what she had done. Otherwise, may still be going on. And the expectation is that there will be some sort of recommendations. The hope, I think, for a lot of people is there will be some sort of recommendations that could prevent this in the future. The question is, and I think it's a legitimate, and I think it's a troubling, and I think it's an important question is, can rules really be put in place that could really prevent this in the future? Because the healthcare system can't run without us trusting our healthcare professionals. Can we guarantee that there are rules or policies or procedures that would make sure there's not another Elizabeth Wetlofer down the road? Laura Tamblin-Watts is a senior advocate and fellow at the Institute of Aging with the University of Toronto. She joins us now. Laura, thanks for doing this today. Thank you. When you first heard about this story, and I'm sure you followed this back from right when it began, when you first heard about this story, did it strike you as implausible that such a thing like this could happen? Did this seem like something that really would have required a criminal genius to be able to pull off? Uh, sadly, no. I mean, I was shocked because, you know, this is obviously a case of a serial killer. But the idea that people are dying due to either some form of neglect or, in this case, outright murder in long-term care, I'm sad to say I wasn't surprised that it could happen. You know, you say serial killer, and she absolutely is a serial killer. I mean, she killed eight people and has been convicted of that and admitted to that. It Part of the problem may be that it almost sounds odd to refer to her with the same words, the same describer that you would use for Paul Bernardo or someone like that. It, it, it almost sounds difficult to wrap your head around that, that a nurse administering medicine is the same as a serial killer. Yeah, and it, it does feel so challenging because, of course, we do have trust in our healthcare system, which is generally good, and we try to have trust in the systems that take care of those who are most vulnerable, and particularly people who are in long-term care are, by their nature, very frail and very vulnerable, or they wouldn't be there. But what we know is that there have been enormous problems with our system. And those problems really culminated in the reality of this terrible, terrible incident. We're going to see what the recommendations are, and we're going to see, I mean, inquests like this don't generally point fingers of blame. They just kind of come up with ideas that maybe prevent this in the future. But when you look at something like this, uh, I'll ask you if there's a finger of blame to be pointed. Certainly there's a finger of blame to be pointed at Elizabeth Wetlaw, or no one's going to say otherwise. Is there any that should be also pointed at administration or someone else for not noticing this? Or is this so difficult to see that you look and you say, no, that nobody could have been expected to notice this? This inquiry showed a series of almost unbelievable roadblocks, challenges, and system failures that I don't think is unique to this particular inquiry, but is certainly endemic to the system. When you have a coroner with a straight face saying that no death in long-term care is an unexpected death, you know, your jaw drops because, of course, people can be, in this case, murdered, but have other types of deaths that are not because they are ill or frail. When you have a system that 
doesn't check its paperwork. When you have insulin as an unregulated substance, and when you have, most importantly, dramatic understaffing and underreporting of elder abuse, we eventually end up with a system that can allow this tragedy to happen. Just to go back to something you just said, so I understand this, when you say that they said that anybody in the long-term care could die, which of course makes it difficult to find, do you say that's not the case? Because I mean, a lot of people would say, look, if you've got elderly people who are in long-term care, that would make sense that they could drop dead. I mean, sorry to be so blunt, but that that could happen. Is that not a fair assessment? No, of course, we have long histories in Canada of people who are dying in long-term care systems that have nothing to do with the physical frailty for why they're there. And it's also important to remember that long-term care serves everyone over the age of 18. So there's many younger people with physical disabilities who are there. There's people who have suffered terrible wounds or bed sores that have nothing to do with their physical frailty for why they're there. So certainly one of the things that we need to be looking at is reviewing again our systems, which has allowed a lack of insight into coroner's inquiries. So it used to be in Ontario and Um, and this was a common practice in other places, that the coroner would review every so often the deaths in long-term care, maybe one in 10 deaths or or one in 15 deaths in long-term care as a matter of protocol. And that was dropped. So when you have a system in Ontario where there are no regular coroner reviews of deaths in long-term care system, then that makes it the playground for people who are predators. And we know that our system is not adequately staffed, and the training is often not there to ensure that we do have the right level of care for the people who are in need to prevent tragedy. So if there had been even random, uh, and I don't know if this is going to be one of the recommendations, I have no idea, but if there had been, let's say, a a policy in place that in long-term care facilities, every we're going to take out of every 10 deaths, we're going to do a random autopsy on one of them, just to make sure that things are, and we don't know which one, but we're just going to make sure that we're keeping tabs on this. Do you think that would have prevented this or at least cut this off earlier? Certainly that is the protocol in in most jurisdictions. And as I say, has been the protocol in Ontario because it does have a preventative or at least a systematic review effect. So if you're seeing every so many uh, deaths, that there's some type of systematic problem, then you can actually be alive to that concern. It could be a deterrent too. Right. Right. It is obviously, of course, a deterrent. And in the United States, for instance, they have regular death reviews in long-term care. This is true in other jurisdictions in Canada. Really, Ontario took a big step backwards in its staffing, in its systems to support best care. So that's on the back end. So we're looking at what happens to make sure that when people have died, that they've died of natural causes and not from neglect or, in this case, murder. We really also need to be looking at the front end, and I'm hoping that this is what's going to be um, elucidated in the inquiry today, that we know that the staffing levels are absolutely not what they need to be. We know that people are spending too much time dealing with uh, details and administration and not enough time providing the needed care for people. And so we need to rethink long-term care, and I'm hoping that this inquiry will give us a way forward to do that in Ontario. 
I am I am not a nurse. I'm not a doctor. Uh, so my knowledge of medicines is uh, limited. I, I can distribute myself an aspirin. That's about it. Um, <laughs> but it is my understanding that if you are a senior, an elderly person, or if you are frail, if you are ill, it wouldn't take as much of an overdose of some kind of medication to do great harm to you. And that's what we're seeing with Elizabeth Wetlaufer, that insulin amounts that maybe some younger person who was healthier might have been able to survive. It's a very simple, a very tr- sneaky, but a very easy thing to hide that allowed her to get away with this. Uh, but it points to, I guess, if nothing else, it points to what we talked about a moment ago, the immense amount of trust that we have to have in our healthcare professionals who are there that if it doesn't take a whole lot to do great damage to you, we have to believe and trust that they have the best interests of us or it's very easy to do damage. Absolutely. And I mean, it's important to remember that most people who are working in our healthcare system are dedicated, professional, and out to help. But what we know is that particularly in our long-term care system, that the way that it's been set up, the way that it's been administrated, and the lack of oversight that we see in terms of staffing levels, in terms of empathy, in terms of quality of care, allows for these tragedies, which is, no, it's a unique situation, and but is indicative of much larger gaps in our system. And we're hoping that this report will make recommendations that are actionable. We're concerned, of course, is that we will get another report. We've had coroner's reports before in long-term care after death, and very little has been done. So the go-forward question will be not just what are the recommendations, but are we going to actually implement them? And you're, I believe you're 100% correct that the enormous 99.999% of people in healthcare are there because they want to help people. But as we've seen in this particular case, or in really any, again, it sounds funny, but any serial killer case, uh, it takes one. That's all it takes. It does take one. And if you think about our systems in providing care for those who are most vulnerable uh, to abuse, and we would look at people with disabilities perhaps, or people who are uh, um, having some type of cognitive impairment or child and youth, it's important that we make sure that our system connects and supports not just their physical needs, but their emotional and mental needs and their well-being. We've done a good job of that in other areas, like with children. But what we're seeing is that we need to be rethinking our long-term care system. It was not designed for people to live 80, 90, Mm. and 100 plus years. And so our whole system needs to be rethought through. And the assumptions that we're working within are simply outdated. So long-term care is now a place where our most vulnerable older adults are living. They're making their homes. And we need to make sure that the systems are safe and that the quality and level of care is there to ensure that these terrible, terrible circumstances, these loopholes, or these extraordinary cases like the Wetlawfer case never happen again. Let me ask you something a little bit delicate because some people may blanch at this, especially those if they're nurses or doctors who are listening right now. But uh, my daughter is in nursing, is just finishing her RN program. And back when she started several years ago, Early in the class, I, she was telling us a story that, that, that one of the nurses in a class asked, okay, who wants to go into this line of nursing and whatever? And when they got to labor and delivery, like half or three quarters of the class's hand went up. And that's a very popular one. I don't know what the number was who put up their hand for senior care. 
But I'm wondering if this is a popular line of work, a popular line of care for nursing and doctors are, in other words, and again, I ask this delicately, are we getting our best and brightest healthcare people who are going into this to work in long-term care facilities? What I'll say is we're not getting enough people going into geriatrics and gerontology. It's a huge field where we have an enormous need for professional development. The people we do get are usually passionate about that area. They've chosen that area, but we have so many fewer geriatricians than we need. We have so many fewer geriatric nurses than we need. We have so many fewer geriatric um, occupational therapists, physiotherapists, and so on. So if people are looking for where we need to build capacity in the space, it is in the field of aging. But we've seen studies before about ageism in medical school, not in nursing school, but in medical school. And uh, a quite famous study a few years ago did a test at the beginning and the end of medical school about the level of ageism that the incoming students had. You mean as far as what they want to get into with their work? Well, what they wanted to get in with their work, yes, but also what their attitudes were about older people versus younger people. And so this attitudinal test was done, and they found that after graduating medical school, they were markedly more ageist. They had more negative ideas of older people than even when they started. So we need to rethink our system to ensure that we address this idea that older people are worth less. And when we're thinking about our population, you know, we always say, unless you're doing pediatrics or obstetrics, you're going to be doing geriatrics because, frankly, that's who our population is. We will be about one in four people over the age of 65 by 2030 in Canada. We already have more older adults over 65 than kids 15 and under. So with our demographic shift, we need the health care to shift along with it. But we are starkly underqualified and understaffed in this area. Yeah, and and I'll say this, I've talked to a number of nurses about this. Working with seniors can be delightful because they are delightful people, but it can also, some of the stuff you have to do as a nurse can be a real grind. It's not always light and fluffy. And meanwhile, you know, handling babies in labor and delivery, also a very difficult job, but boy, 99 days out of a hundred, it's happy news because someone's going home with a baby. So it, it can be tough, I would guess, to draw people into this if they don't have a huge passion for it. And one of the the things that we've really seen is that the model of care that we deliver to older adults, particularly in long-term care systems, creates negativity, both in terms of more work, more types of work that are unappealing to people, and with a less uh, connected approach between the care provider and the older adult. And that's why we are looking really with great interest to see what's happening in innovation of long-term care. You may have heard about some of the dementia villages. We had some uh, overseas Mm -hmm. in Europe, and now we've got two in Canada, which has started up. And we're seeing great success, for instance, in Peel Region and, uh, and now in the city of Toronto with models like the Butterfly Model or the Eden Alternative Model, which turns long-term care thinking on its head and is all about how do you make that emotional connection and how do you make sure that you are really valuing the person. And what we see is that staff satisfaction rates skyrocket when the model of care changes. But a piece of that is also we need to make sure that the staffing levels are appropriate. And we know right now that in Ontario long-term care systems, we only need one RN 
per long-term care, and that's shocking. Laura, I only have 30 seconds, so I'm sorry I can't give you more, but can a can the uh, suggestions, the recommendations, can they prevent this, or can they only help to prevent this in the future? Well, I think that the issue of a serial killer is unique to the circumstance, but what I can say is if the recommendations are progressive, and if we act on them, then we will certainly have a better long-term care system. Laura Tamblin-Watts, a fellow at the Institute of Aging at University of Toronto. Appreciate your time today. Thanks for taking it. Thank you. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.